Hello and welcome to Dad Pod. I'm Charlie. He's Osha, and we are two dads who are trying to work out what the hell we're doing, and hopefully through our fumblings, give some advice that's useful to you. Season one was us in the midst of it. Season two, we're trying to kind of look back, look back with facts. Dad Pod season two now with facts, as we call it. Yeah, we're just making our way in the world today. <laughs> it takes everything you've got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. It sure would help a lot, you know? <laughs> now, as someone who's in recovery, Osh, does that uh, does that kind of song <laughs> fill you with dread? <laughs> no, because Woody Harrelson's there. Yeah. So we're talking about a sitcom called Cheers that went off air, I don't know, 30 years ago. And look, anyone who's old enough to be a dad listening to this pod would know what Cheers was, I would hope. Oh, anyone, anyone who's old as we are. I don't know, man. There's probably dads who are 21 that were like, what the fuck, guys? I was born in 1999. Yeah, fuck that's off. true. We need to make some more OC references. <laughs> <laughs> we'll play some Phantom Planet and just and just get on with it. Yeah. This is our, our final episode of season two. We're going to dedicate it to the last few moments of like getting up. Let's... We're not quite into the planning. We're not packing the go bag. We're just at the very last in the third trimester. What happens in the third trimester? What, what's going on? Uh, we touched a little on it last week with the Swiss ball. I remember that Audrey could only get relief sitting on the Swiss ball. It was very difficult for her to sit on any other kind of furniture because uh, the pressure that Wolfie the, and the baby was, was pushing down upon her. We were seeing the doctor every week by this point. We were now we're starting to really hear the heartbeat every week. We were starting to see the ultrasound every week. We're, we're seeing all the bones and the bits and pieces in the insides of him through the ultrasound, which was pretty weird. Mm. And we also, there was a lot of pressure, not pressure really, but there was pressure. Let's say there wasn't, but there was to go on a baby moon, Charlie. Oh, it was, you did a baby moon. Mm, it was Tell me about that, Osh. Well, I've kind of looked into this a bit, Charlie, mm. and the, the word baby moon the term was first used in a book written in 1996, a book called The Year After Childbirth. And originally, it originally was uh, parents spending time at home together with their new baby. All right. That was oh. the baby moon. All right. Because right? okay. the honeymoon after you get married yeah. is mum and dad, well, the husband and wife spending time alone together after their wedding to probably make babies. But the baby moon was originally the time when you spend time alone with just you and the baby, but it's since become this kind of holiday that you have, the the last gasp break before a baby where you and your partner get to just be with each other. Did you go on a baby moon, Charlie? No. So tell me, can the baby moon be taken any time at the pregnancy or is the idea you do it sort of in the last trimester? Well, the last trimester does come with, uh, you can't really travel after 36 weeks. Yeah because they don't want you, you know, having a baby on a plane. Yeah. But you can drive somewhere. You can like, yeah, you yeah. Can, you can drive somewhere. We uh, we went at thirty two weeks. We went to Daydream Island oh. on the the beautiful Whit Sundays, and it was delightful. And that was a planned baby moon. Yeah, it was a planned baby moon, and we took Georgia with us. It was like the last time the three of us were able to go away as as a family mm. without dragging prams and car seats with us everywhere yeah. we go. I mean, I don't think we had a planned baby moon. I mean, you know, we travel a bit for work. I think Gemma had a commercial. So it was actually pretty much, it was pretty close to the wire, I remember, in terms of her not being able to fly at a certain point. We had to get like a special letter from the doctor to show to the airline to say it's fine, she can get in the plane. So, I mean, we went to Adelaide. 
Yeah. I mean, I, it's not, I don't recall it being like a, a baby moon. It was for work, but we were in a hotel and, you know, we were able to go out for dinner and catch up with some friends who live in South Australia and stuff. So ours, I guess we had a baby moon, but it, we didn't know we were having a baby moon at the time. Look, I, I did enjoy it. That last few weeks before Wolfie arrived was actually really nice because Audrey was limited uh, we had a, we had a, <laughs> just put a full stop right there. <laughs> uh, Audrey was limited in a movement. We had a few false starts. We did go into threatened preterm labour, right. so Audrey was given the cease and desist, sit on the couch orders. Sure, and that did drive her a bit nuts. But it was nice to just to be together and hang out and you know cook food and mm. just be peaceful before Wolfie arrived. That was really really nice. A mate of mine took his wife on a baby moon, and they um grabbed a caravan and they scooted up and down the uh, New South Wales coast surfing. <laughs> yeah, well, one of the things you want to sort of think about in this period, because things you can do now are going to be limited in terms of probably what you physically can do, but also what your wife just wants to do. She's going to be a lot more tired, just want to spend time at home. So it's a really good time to start thinking and visualizing the kind of birth you want to have. This is a really good time to start thinking about what you want in the birth room, who you want to be in there. Are you going to sort of put up some signs, you know, letting the nurses and doctors know who you want to be in there? But for us, it was also a great time to come up with a playlist. You know, what music do you want played through this period? Because guaranteed it's going to be a long time, especially if it's your first child. Labor tends to take a bit longer. So you can literally put 14 hours worth of a playlist together, which Gemma and I did. So it's a good time to just sort of sit around and talk about the kind of music that you like and the kind of music you want to play. You know, we talked about in season one, I know that you and I and and with a number of our guests talked about the kind of music that we played to our kids in utero. And for us, Iona tended to respond to kind of classic 70s rock Queen, Led Zeppelin, that kind of stuff, Fleetwood Mac, that was the stuff that really got her going. And there has been some research done on playing music to your child in utero, and there is a a belief that playing classical music to your kid actually helps the development of their brain. Now, I'm not sure that, you know, Beethoven is any better than Motorhead, but this was a study that was done. This research found that babies preferred classical music at least to pop music and overall songs that the babies were most indifferent about, the ones that scored the lowest in the sale were songs by Shakira, Too Much Heaven by the Bee Gees, all scored at the bottom end. So if I'm going to recommend any music for you to play to your kid, disco is out. The stuff that kids responded most to, Osh, Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody. Yes. And maybe to moot my uh, disco point a little bit, YMCA by the village people. But the 70s, <laughs> I don't know what it was. You know more about music than I do. The 70s tends to be a good period in terms of how they register response on children. So what they look for is uh, mouth and tongue movements in the fetus. And so in these studies, when they played 70s music, they saw the most activity was happening with the tongue and the mouth of the fetus during pregnancy. That is Bananas. I do know uh, my fantastic show producer, Rachel Barrett, she took a, a beautiful picture straight down of her sitting cross-legged with a little Yui Boom Bluetooth speaker sitting in front of her pregnant belly. Mm. And she played this particular song from Underworld to her, her unborn child every night. And this song, this baby is now, I think her daughter's now five or six. Mm. That song still makes a child want to go to sleep. Well, I wish I could remember the song that played when Iona was born. We had a great playlist and it sort of went across all genres and and, and eras. And it was funny because we had this midwife who was a guy who was English 
and Gemma's obviously Scottish, so same part of the world. And when the song came on as Iona was coming into the world, the midwife was like, oh, I haven't heard this band in ages. And it was, it's Gemma and I have been racking our brains trying to remember who it was. It was a British band, probably from the Britpop era that brought Iona into the world. And it's like, I know one day we'll be listening to something on shuffle and then the song will play and we'll both remember, but it's been like a seven month kind of mystery trying to work out what was a song playing when Iona was born. Did you have music playing when Audrey was in labor? We absolutely did. Or Georgia, my delightful stepdaughter made a playlist called mum and I listened to it still sometimes. And it had Beyonce, it had all kinds of things. And Wolfie came into the world while a song from Khalid called Talk was playing. And it was freaking Hang on. perfect. DJ Khalid? No, not DJ Khalid, oh, the okay, singer. Right. The singer Khalid. Okay, right. I was going to say DJ Khalid. Khalid. Not no, not most... him. No, okay. not him. No, a song called Talk. <laughs> Can we just talk? Can we just talk? Oh, yeah, it's no, great. Right. Beautiful track. And, yeah, a lot of Beyonce, which was really fantastic. And, uh, and Lizzo was in there as well. It was uh, it was a really beautiful. And to have Georgia in the room with us by playing music was just perfect. But it's a real grounding thing. And particularly if it's music you're familiar with, it it allows that space, which was otherwise unfamiliar, to become instantly familiar. And it was really powerful. Yeah. And there's other things you want to sort of think about as well to take into that birth room. Like you, you want to have some snacks. You'll want to have some drinkables with straws because your wife's not really going to be in the mood to sip from a cup. But if you can put a straw to her mouth, she doesn't have to think about it. She can just suck on that straw. Juices are good. Stuff with sugar in them just to kind of keep her energy up. Little snackable things. I made a whole bunch of snacks. I made some protein balls and some almond flour cookies and all these kind of things. Nothing that's going to be messy or sloppy or, you know, need a spoon to eat. Just little things she can whack in her gob. Salt lamps are really good as well for creating like a nice low light atmosphere. I mean, I guess if you're trying to sort of think of the atmosphere, it's like you're trying to create that 70s show basement. <laughs> that's the vibe <laughs> you want. You want, a, yeah. you want a vibe where you can listen to your records and your friends can hang out and don't have to worry about your parents busting in. That's a similar kind of vibe. You don't want just anyone from the hospital wandering in. You want it to be your space. So just think of what's the idealized room you would have had as a 16-year-old. That's the kind of vibe you're going for. All that stuff is focused on keeping you calm, I guess, Charlie, and making you feel familiar because while I was very excited about Wolfie coming along, I was still quite afraid. You know, I was uh, so afraid of the unknown and afraid of what might happen, what you, we always talk about, don't go on WebMD and don't go on Google <laughs> because there's a squillion things that can go really, really wrong. I mean, we, you know, we talked about, can I afford this to, you know, this is a mostly safe thing, but it's also, it's a very dangerous thing that your wife's about to do. And, you know, yeah. a lot can really go quite wrong in the last mm couple of hours of labor and, and the first few hours of life. And um, I remember being really quite worried. And and I guess that's where the trust in the in, in the medical professionals that were in, in the hospital were, was a big thing for me. And, um, you know, we talked earlier about going public or going private. I was so grateful that we had this relationship with our gynecologist obstetrician because, you know, we'd had a couple of false starts. And as I've said before, We'd be in the hospital at two in the morning, you know, Audrey's experiencing contractions and it's two in the morning and then at 11 minutes past two, he's standing there in full scrubs. I'm like, what? Do you live here? He goes, no, no, no. <laughs> they, they let me know you were here. It's like, it's two in the morning. It's my job. 
You're looking in the mirror, he said his name three times. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But that went a long way to allay my fears. But it's totally understandable to be worried. You know, I've I've heard stories of dads who when the when the baby gets born, particularly after traumatic birth, just grabbing the child and running out of the room and you know, people going, Hey, hey, we need to check that the baby's okay. <laughs> You know, but the dad's really just gone into this altered state of protection because it is, it is frightening. But as you said, Charlie, thousands of people have done it. Thousands will yep. do it today. Thousands will do it tomorrow. And in these modern times, infant mortality is lower than it's ever been in history. And now's the safest time ever in the history of humanity to have a baby. Yeah. And that's why you want to make that room that sweet. That's why you want to think now about the music, think now about what you want to have in the room, because sure, all that stuff is a reality. So you want to create a bigger bubble for yourself as possible. Make that room, like I said, feel like that 70s show basement. Yeah. <laughs> Charlie, episode 10, uh, I've saved a fantastic dad to take us out for the first season. He's really all of our dads in many ways. He'll tell it like it is. He's not afraid to call it uh, when he sees it. Peter Fitzsimons, welcome to Dad Pod. How are you, sir? What a very kind introduction, Osha. <laughs> I, know, I always remember when the first time I talked to you, you knocked on my door. I, I hadn't watched many of your sort of celebrity shows, and my daughter answered the door <laughs> in her late teens and nearly fainted. She watched them all. <laughs> Peter, you've, uh, you, between you and your wife, you've uh, brought a bunch of beautiful children into the world. Do you recall uh, any fear that you had before the first one came along? Do you recall any anxiety? I remember, look, I mean, all of us are, I guess, the, the moment of realising we're about to be parents. It's, it's the moment that will never leave you. But we were in our place in Annandale and, you know, Lisa was feeling a bit queasy and she went to get the, uh, you know, that there was a little blue script thing. You know, like if it turns blue, you're pregnant. And she came into the kitchen and held it up and she could barely speak. And it was absolutely clearly blue. We're going to be parents, you know, six months from now, seven months from now. And we were both absolutely so excited, so thrilled. And yes, I couldn't help but notice, and I'm not joking, for the next, but just about for the rest of the pregnancy. Well, I guess the test came back after a month, but for the next seven or eight months, she was crook. She was burping, 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 burping all the time and worse and just crook and holding down a job. And it was a pretty grim six or seven months till the birth. And on the day, it was a Saturday that, you know, she, at three o'clock on the Saturday morning, she came back from the bathroom and she said, your baby, I'll never forget this, your baby is on its way. And we called the hospital and they said, you know, we had to time the thing about contractions and whatever the timing was, it had to be every, whatever it was, every three or four minutes. I don't want to give false information here, but there was a certain, they had to be coming every few minutes, a particular time before you'd head to the hospital. What I most remember is that she was then in half labour for like 12 hours and we both had the sense that the rest of the world had stopped somehow. Mm. You know, like we were we were so lost in this world of our baby on, on its way that it, there was just this really strong sense. We didn't hear the swish of traffic. Somehow the phone didn't ring that day and... Nothing happened, and then we were, we got to the hospital. And what I most remember here, we as we go up, the, the maternity ward was on the fourth floor, and Lisa by then is 
in serious labour. And as we go down the hallway, we pass the first door on the right. And out of that door, there are these screams, just screaming, you know, like as some woman, a very brave woman is giving birth. And the next door on our left, another screen. And it was just like, wow, it felt like the Hall of Horrors. I was quite shocked. Finally got Lisa into her bed, you know, into the bed, and they ushered her in. And I thought, I need a cup of tea. And there was a red button. So I thought if I pressed that red button, somebody would come, you know, like or like a cup of tea, please. Anyway, I pressed the red button, probably one of the more foolish things I've done in my life. And then this goes through the corridor. People come rushing in white. Doctors and nurses, because that was the cardiac arrest button. Oh, alarm. no! <laughs> so, anyway, look, to tell, I'm telling war stories, but what then happened was there was, no joke, 27 hours of labour. Wow. And because, you know, a difficult labour. And I made something of an error by 12 or 13 hours into that labour, falling asleep on the beanbag. <laughs> something something for which I've never forgotten, and to cut to the chase, at 3.45am on the morning of, I was very pleased all these machines, and they were going beep, 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 you know, like there was all these graphs, and I felt like I'm in the middle of medical science here, which is exactly where I wanted to be, and what most impressed me was that at 3.45am, the beep, 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 suddenly went beep, 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 and whatever that was, it meant we've got to get this baby out, we've got to get this baby out now. And so they really did press a button. And what that button did, it went out to 15 professionals, all of whom lived within 10 minutes of that hospital. And from 3.45 a.m., we need this baby out now, to the emergency Caesar. It was like 4.20. It was like 35 minutes later. There were 14, 15 professionals around my wife. And what most, again, I keep saying what most shocked me, but it really did shock me, was the surgeon, and I think I can say her name now, Diana Jakobovic, the late Diana Jakobovic, who was a wonderful gynecologist, surgeon, obstetrician, I guess the word I'm looking for is. But the actual process of the Caesar, I was stunned by the seeming simplicity of the Caesar in the sense that an extremely, obviously extremely sharp scalpel on her abdomen. And they went like four or five strokes. They reached in and took out our baby, Jake Raymond Fitzsimons. And what, what stunned me was the simplicity of getting the baby out and, God help me, the complications of putting those slits back together, if you know what I mean, like that. Mm. It was, I'm not diminishing by any means the skill that they had, the skill, it seemed to me, came the other way around, sewing her back up. And again, I'm, I'm imagining your podcast is okay with sort of graphic stuff. Oh, yeah, but, absolutely. Yeah. But, but, but I mean, if, you, if this is a podcast, as I imagine, about this is what it's like. The baby, as Jake Raymond Fitzsimons emerged, this was not a classically good-looking baby. This was a baby that had been through 27 hours of labour and had tried to force his head through the canal. And... Everything was sort of elongated. He looked like ET, you know. And of course, in the next you know day or two, everything sort of formed up. But again, I would say 
to prospective fathers and mothers looking for your baby for the first time, if they've been through a traumatic episode like that, the first look of a newborn is not quite the way it is in the movies. An amazing story, man. Thank you for sharing that with us because we haven't really had somebody talk us through the emergency Caesar and obviously in that moment you'd be quite afraid not only for the health of your wife but also the health of your baby how, how were you feel how did you deal with that fear at the time um look my primary fear again we're going into sort of strong territory here but the thing that my late mother told me and she was still alive at this stage she said that when she was growing up 1930s 1940s were longer her mother had told her that the baby will you'll first see a movement 17 weeks and four days in. And we did the obvious. We thought, yeah, 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 sure. You know, medical science has moved on, you know, like whatever. That just sounded like an old husband's tale, you know. You, but anyway, no joke. 17 weeks and four days, Lisa felt, it felt like indigestion. But then the that wonderful thing of when you can actually put your hand on your wife's tummy and you can actually feel movement in there. It just seems obviously the most natural human thing possible, but it just seemed extraordinary to us, you know, that we were growing a life mm. in there, a life that had come from us. And the fear, the fear was, I'm always, when you see parents with children with disabilities, and there's a particular friend of mine who had three absolutely gorgeous, wonderful, fully able children. And then the fourth one has severe disabilities. And I think so often when you see parents with children with severe disabilities, there's something so touching in humanity. Somehow, I guess uh, I'm making this part up, but I'm guessing it's true that we must be one of the only species who give birth and when, when the when the baby comes and is not able to keep up with the rest of the pack, we I'm guessing we're one of the few, very few species that sorts ourselves out to look after that child. And this particular friend of mine, as is her husband, they are absolute saints. But if you ask me what the major fear we had was, when you go in for all those, you know, the tests, how the fetus is developing and so forth, that was my primary fear. And again, you know, heading into sort of graphic, difficult territory but after we'd had our three babies we were very lucky to have three children without any disabilities at all but at one point my wife Lisa Wilkinson who I guess many of your people may know our co-host of project she's written and talked about when we had three miscarriages in the one year and there was one particular one of those miscarriages this was after we've been lucky with three where the test suddenly came back and said, look, your fetus is alive, but if this child is born, make no mistake, there will be serious, serious issues. And the broad advice was, you know, not to continue. And Lisa and I looked at each other and were absolutely united on this. No, we don't care, okay? Go ahead. Absolutely go straight ahead. and. Somebody close to me took me aside and said, think very carefully about this. If this were to go ahead, this is the life you're facing that will be very, very difficult on the advice of the obstetrician. And we looked at each other. We heard that advice. I, I told her and we said, absolutely united. We don't care. Absolutely continue regardless. 
And as it happened, it didn't continue. So nature, you know, came in. But again, parents that face that, I look back, when we made that decision to absolutely continue, you know, how different our lives might be now. We would have loved that child absolutely regardless. But my admiration for parents who, you know, just changed their entire lives and that look after, and so this particular friend of mine, she's organised for the integration of that child who's now 19 and integration of that child into a school and he's graduated and he's a fantastic young man. But the lesson there in integration, when you take the children with special needs and you put them into regular schools, and there's a better word than regular, but not coming to me, the lesson is always, it's not just that child that is helped, it is the children around that adapt and realise the world is made up of all kinds of people, and it's a very enlightening thing for children to have amongst them children that do have special needs, because they all, generally, they rise to the occasion. Definitely. Peter, as two new dads, relatively new dads, relatively new old dads, Osh and I were both in our 40s when our children were born, part of the motivation for starting this podcast was realizing there isn't a lot of resources that men can turn to, that other dads can turn to. Did you have friends or or a father that you could talk to about this stuff or, or was it sort of learning as you went along? That is a very interesting point. So I've always been amazed when women get together, when new, particularly newly pregnant women to get together, I've, I've observed many conversations over the years where a newly pregnant woman is with her elder sisters or her friends who are also or mothers and talk about war stories because what happens, it seems to me that what happens is the first mother will say to the newly pregnant one, oh, gee, 10 hours labor. And the next one will say, what do you think, 10 hours labor? I was, you know, 15 hours, and then the final, you know, and Lisa's always the one that lays the card on the table, the killer card, the eighth one. You know, 27 hours later, emergency Caesar in hospital for 10 days. But they sort of outdo each other. But that's a really interesting question because I don't think that, so there's a culture among women, as, as I've observed, of more experienced women taking the newly pregnant one aside and saying, well, this is what you're facing. But I I think that's right. I don't think we males have that same mechanism of talking to each other of this is what it's going to be like. That's very interesting. We we should get a podcast going. (laughs) (laughs) Wait a second. Peter... For you to share those two stories with us is it's extraordinarily generous that you would, by just simply telling us what happened to you, normalise two things that are rarely talked about in our culture. And I'm I'm really grateful that you have given us the gift of those two stories. As you've got a bit of experience under your belt now, and it's been a few years and you've seen other dads come and go, for dads who are listening, and primarily the people that are listening, their, their partners are pregnant or they're you know, coming around for number two and they are kind of wondering how they might tackle things this time around, what advice would you have for the first six months, first year of baby's life? What is something that you wish someone had told you? I guess presence. Funnily enough, I mean, Lisa and I talked about this the other day. I, um, in terms of the Frank Sinatra line, regrets I've got a few, but then again, too few to mention. We have, I think, very, very few regrets in terms of the way we've raised our children. I have one regret, I mean, something that I I now, I love playing tennis 
and you know my kids are now in their in their mid twenties, and I do have a regret that I wasn't playing tennis in their first ten years. Like if they could have seen me on the tennis court in those formative years, they would get the joy out of tennis that I do. But that's not a great answer. My major thing is in that first time when your children arrive, it tends to be in the years that you're establishing yourself. Like for me, I kicked around, you know, living in various places around the world in my twenties. But in my thirties, Lisa and I met on the fifth of December nineteen ninety one. We're engaged by the 15th of March, 92, married on the 26th of September, 92. We went nine months from meeting. We were married. She was pregnant very shortly after. By our second wedding anniversary, we both left the houses we were living in. You know, we were living in, in a new house that we bought together. We had a baby, you know, a two-day-old baby on our first wedding anniversary. And they were the establishment time. She was flat out and I was flat out. But, you know, we absolutely, we were always there for the baby. But I guess my advice looking back, if I could relive and do things, I would probably write a couple less books. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> In that time. You know, I think by and large, we're good parents. But I guess if I could turn the dial up on something or turn the dial down on something, I'd turn the dial down on professional activity and I'd turn the dial up on being there all the time instead of most of the time. Does that make sense? Perfect. Yeah, it's great advice. I mean, I, I grew up in a family of seven children. I was the youngest of seven children. And I think that, you know, in the first 10 years of my life, I would think that my parents, I was under the same roof as my parents, but 365 days out of 365 with an extra one on leap years, they were just always, always there. Now, I didn't live a life, and Lisa didn't live a life, where we were going to be there, both of us, in the one house and the one time. And we were mostly there. And we were blessed, again, with you know really great kids. But the new parents, I guess, the reality of when children come along, it is usually, perhaps in your busiest professional years, they're your establishment years. You're buying a house or renting a house, whatever, but you're going hard. Probably you're going your hardest in your professional times in your 30s. And the kids come along at a time when you tend to be amongst your most frantic years. And again, my only advice, this is a time that will never come again. You have to cherish that time. Excellent, mate. Thank you so, so much for your, your time today, Peter. Your wisdom's bloody brilliant. And uh, a it's a real gift that you've given us. Thanks so much, brother. Great to talk to you today, Peter. Thank you, both. Thanks, Peter. How good was Peter? Oh my that was goodness! Amazing. I mean, I knew. I mean, the guy. All he does is write books about military leaders. So, and he's <laughs> he's a great fella. I didn't think that he would. I mean, I knew he would come through with the goods, but I didn't know he would come through like that. Oh my goodness! To have that conversation and to be so generous in offering that up. I mean, wow. Yeah, we felt like we could have done like an entire season just talking to him. Maybe that'll be that pod season, season three. Season three. Well, we need someone to be the Steve Gutenberg to our Ted Danson we and uh, Tom Selleck. So it's we true. Found it. uh, Osh, uh, it's the final ep of Dad Pod season two, and so this will be our last induction into the Dad Pod Hall of Fame. And I've been a bit lazy. I've taken a suggestion that you dropped a couple of weeks ago and really? uh, done a bit of research. But here's one that you thought of, but I'm going to take credit for, Roger Murtagh. Oh, Roger Murtagh. 
the the I'm too old for this shit from Lethal Weapon. Exactly. Is there more a more dad quote than I am too old for this shit? And literally for you and I, two guys who waited a long time to be dads, we are too old for this shit. So uh, Roger Murtaugh was a cynical homicide detective. He was a Vietnam vet. Yep. And he gets partnered, and this is what you're going to find as a dad as well. He gets partnered with a loose cannon yeah. that he has to sort of keep his eye on. He's however many days from retirement. When you become a dad, it's like you're partnered with a loose cannon. Your kid is the rigs. <laughs> you are Murtar, yep. and your kid is the rigs. Last night, my rigs got up at midnight, 2 a.m., and 5 a.m. to tell me that she wanted to get nuts. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I yep. can tell you, I did feel too old for this shit. Yeah. Murtaugh is, there's a moment where, obviously, in the first Lethal Weapon film, he drives across a salt flat on the other side of the Salton Sea to go and save his daughter. Uh, there's a yep. helicopter involved. There's a flare. Yep. In the second uh, edition of Lethal Weapon, he decides to not get off the toilet to stop his family <laughs> from being blown up. He acts as a father figure to Joe Pesci in Lethal <laughs> Weapon 3. Um, I can't think. I actually was trying to think what happened. I don't know. I, I can remember one and two. I can't remember three and four so well. But he really was the archetypal father in the first series. His daughter gets a crush on Riggs. He has mm -hmm. to deal with that as well. But essentially, what I love most about Murtaugh is when the shit goes down at the end of the first lethal weapon, he basically just goes, you know what? I am too old for this shit. I'm just going to sit back and let Riggs go do the kung fu fight with Gary Busey on the front <laughs> lawn because I think that is part of being a dad as well, just finding somewhere comfortable to sit and let someone else do the heavy lifting. <laughs> when he takes out Mr. Joshua, when he... That was it's such a great spoiler alert if you haven't seen it. But oh, weapon. come on. We don't do spoiler alerts for a film that's 40 years old. Okay, but it's a great movie. It's it's terrible, but it's really great. Brilliant. <laughs> Roger Murtaugh, you and your gigantic mobile phone the size of a suitcase. <laughs> we are all too old for this shit. Dad, Dad Pod salutes, salutes you. <laughs> wow, and that's, that's a, it, Osh. That's we did a, 10 episodes just like that. Boom. Brilliant. If you are a, an expectant dad, if you're an expectant mum-dad, thank you so much for listening. We certainly hope that this season has helped you out. If you have any suggestions for Season 3, uh, you can always get in touch with us. AskDadPod at gmail.com or also on DadPodGram. I, uh, I don't know. What am I going to do? It's now, oh, crikey, I'm on. I'm on shift. Yeah, I can hear Iona. She's woken up from her nap, so I'll be expected to go in and, and take my licks. But if you do like the show, remember to uh, rate, write a review. That All that stuff helps the algorithm. The Apple algorithm gets us up in the charts. Uh, if it's the first episode you've listened to, there's a whole other season yeah. you can go back where you can listen in real time as Osh and I become fathers in your ears. In your that ear holes. Much worse than, <laughs> that's much worse than me too. Yeah, you're a great dad, Charlie Clawson. Happy dadding today. So you, and uh, until we speak on season three, go to bed. Go to bed. 